If you like Between the Covers, you may also enjoy the American Masters Creative Spark podcast from the makers of the signature PBS series American Masters. How do the world's greatest artists, writers, musicians, and filmmakers find their creative spark? Every episode of American Masters Creative Spark takes you inside their creative process. Each week, an artist like documentarian Errol Morris, poet Jericho Brown, musician Kim Gordon, and filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan goes in-depth on the creation of a single work. American Masters Creative Spark is available free wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is also brought to you by the Tin House Workshop Craft Intensives, taking place between December 2nd and December 6th. This winter series features multiple three-hour-long classes led by Tin House book authors and workshop alumni and offers a dose of inspiration and practical advice that combines close readings, discussions, and in-class writing exercises. Applications are rolling with tuition waivers available. Please visit tinhouse.com slash workshop to learn more. It's with particular joy that I present today's episode with a poet whose work is close to my heart, Rosemary Waldrop, a poet who is also the translator of the work of another writer close to my heart, Edmond Jabez. It's been a joy to be immersed in both of their works over the last half year in anticipation of this day, a conversation that takes place between my home in Portland, Oregon, and hers in Providence, Rhode Island, a conversation that really gets at the heart of the mysteries of not only writing, whether you are a prose writer or a poet or a translator, but the existential questions of life itself and how those questions relate to both language and identity. For the bonus audio, Rosemary reads her translation of Edmond Jabez's Adam or the Birth of Anxiety, a remarkable section from the Book of Shares. The bonus audio archive has become an immensely rich reservoir of material, with everything from Alice Oswald reading New Work and from the Book of Job, Jory Graham reading Rain Poems from Robert Creeley and Edward Thomas, Kava Akbar reading a poem he loves that didn't make it into his latest collection, and Jen Bervin reading from the letters of Paul Salon, and then work of hers written under his influence. To find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio and the other many potential rewards of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers, from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to Nikki Finney, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving books months before they're available to the general public. You can check all of this out and more by heading over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with poet and translator Rosemary Waldrop. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical 
effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, essayist, editor, publisher, novelist, and most notably poet and translator, Rosemary Waldrop, studied literature and musicology at the University of Würzburg and at the University of Freiburg before immigrating to the United States in the 1950s. In 1961, her and Keith Waldrop, her poet-translator husband, started Burning Deck Press, which for over a half century published experimental poetry and prose from writers such as Meme Bersenbrugge, William Bronk, Robert Coover, Lynn Higinian, Barbara Guest, Harry Matthews, and Paul Auster, just to name a few. In 1966, Waldrop earned her PhD at the University of Michigan, with her thesis on experimental poetics becoming the book Against Language. Since 1969, Waldrop has lived in Providence, Rhode Island, has taught at Wesleyan, Tufts, and Brown. She's the author of over 20 poetry collections, including A Key into the Language of America, Split Infinities, Love-Like Pronouns, Curves to the Apple, Driven to Abstraction, and her selected poems, Gap Gardening, which came out in 2016 from New Directions. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2006 and was given the America Award in Literature for a Lifetime Contribution to International Writing in 2021. She's also the author of two novels, including The Hanky of Pippin's Daughter, reissued by Dorothy in 2019, and four books of essays and criticism, including her collected essays, Dissonance, If You're Interested, and her book, Lavish Absence, Recalling and Rereading Edmond Jabez, which is somehow part memoir, part biography, a meditation on translation, and a meditation on friendship forged through the act of translation. Rosemary Waldrop has translated innumerable books from French and German into English. These include the collected prose of Paul Salon, under the Dome Walks with Paul Salon by Jean Deve, which came out last year from City Lights Books, several books by Jacques Roubault, and several more by Emmanuel Ocar. But Waldrop is best known for her lifelong engagement with the work of Egyptian Jewish writer and exile Edmond Jabez, having translated 14 of his books, including The Book of Questions, The Book of Resemblances, The Book of Margins, and the little book of unsuspected subversion. Waldrop received the 2008 Penn Award for Poetry in Translation, was nominated for the Best Translated Book Award in 2013, 
and was made Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres by the French government for her significant contribution to the enrichment of French cultural inheritance. Rosemary Waldrop is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book of poetry, a book 10 years in the making, The Nick of Time, out from New Directions. The poet Billy Mills wrote the following about one sequence included in Waldrop's new book, a sequence called White is a Color. Quote, In what must be less than a thousand words, Waldrop says more about the human condition and how we explore it through words than most of us would manage in a thousand pages. Ryan Ruby for the Poetry Foundation adds, In Waldrop's new book, The Nick of Time, which collects the prose sequences written since Driven to Abstraction, and contains some of the finest writing of her distinguished career, temporality, always an underlying concern of her work, moves unmistakably to the fore. As with some of her previous books, Waldrop deploys the vocabularies of physics and the philosophy of language. But in the nick of time, these two dimensions of temporal experience are harnessed to a third, the existential dimension. Finally, Publishers Weekly says in its starred review, in her first new collection, In a Decade, Waldrop astonishes with poems that explore uncertainty and grief and reckon with time, language, and memory. As her husband's memory begins to fail, Waldrop turns to the intangible and abstract, quote, a sentence with the word time in it already contains a shadow of the soul leaving the body. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rosemary Waldrop. Thank you very much, David, for this lovely introduction. Um, well, before we talk about the nick of time in particular, I thought we could start with a couple aspects of your work that run through much of your work to orient listeners who may be encountering your work as a poet for the first time. And, and the first is the prose poem. You started out writing in lines, but for many decades, your work has mainly been in prose poetry, so much so that New Directions has called you the modern maestra of the prose poem. And in your essay collection, Dissonance, if you're interested, you have the essay titled, Why Do I Write Prose Poems When My True Love Is Verse? And as part of that move from lineated poetry to prose poetry, you've said that you've given up stress for distress. So I thought this would be a great place to start. Um, tell us why po prose poetry has captivated you in such an enduring way as a poet. Well, as you said, I started with writing verse poems, lineated poems. And for a long time, I did one particular trick. I, I tried to have the the object of one sentence flip into being the subject of the next, which I love because it made for great speed. And I will, I will just read one example just to make it concrete. For instance, uh, in this book, uh, which is called The Road is Everywhere or Stop This Body, which is all about sitting in a car commuting between Providence and um, Middletown, Connecticut, where I taught at the time. So it's sitting in a car. Exaggeration of a curve 
exchanges time and again beside you in the car, pieces the road together with night moisture. You see how the um, exchanges time and again, but then time and again beside you in the car, pieces the road together. So you, we have a flow and we have at the same time, we have an interruption. Something, the sentences do not, are not quite grammatical. It just goes on. And, and I love this, uh, this mixture of flow and fragmentation, flow and stop. And that's actually, that's uh, characteristic for all of my writing because that's also the way I, the two impulses I have. And, but uh, I love this because of the great speed, but after a while, after two books of it, um, it felt constrained because it was all main clauses all the time. Mm -hmm. And I got a hankering for subordinate clauses <laughs> and such. So I thought prose uh, was the solution and first tried to write a novel, which I eventually did, but not, uh, it took me, <laughs> enormous, <laughs> an enormous time because I really didn't know what I was doing at all. But uh, I was working on prose, even if it didn't work. And, um, and that was, uh, and that felt like a liberation because there was a kind of open space rather than a main clause highway. And this open space uh, was at the same time anxiety producing because it was so open there were no guidelines mm -hmm. and um, so this is where the stress uh, this is a wonderful phrase of Charles Bernstein's by the way oh really yeah um, so I gave up the stress in this case I'm thinking of say um, a regular meter with its stresses uh, a boxed in form of Ryman meter for distress of the open, of uh, the, un, the unselected, basically. And uh, there's an anxiety to that because you don't know where to go. And um, actually the phrase, I like most of that. And I, I pulled that out because I knew I would misquote it if I, if I just try to remember. It's a phrase by Emily Dickinson, which is, which, uh, is from a letter. Um, and goes like this, moving on in the dark, like loaded boats at night. So there is no course, there is boundlessness. And the strange thing about that quote is the though, because in a way, no course and boundlessness go in the same direction, but she puts this though in, which really, puts a different valuation on these two phrases. The, the so is the negative that is anxiety making. There is no course, but there is boundlessness and that is felt as a positive. Um, so when, when you, I, I like that you brought up the so in the middle of this because you've also talked about how you're, you're taking, what is it, the right margin of a lineated poem. So you read us early lineated lines from you um you take that you're taking the right margin of a lineated poem and bringing that into the middle of the sentence the instability or the disjunction of the line break is now at the heart of sentence syntax 
which is a strange, right. which is a, a, a strange place for, to find that energy of a line break, even though there is no line break. So I wonder if that so is, is, is related to that or if, um, or if that's also what you mean by distress that we, we expect a certain, particularly with the sentence versus the line, we expect a certain, uh, sense of, of cohesion or harmony, uh, and not to discover this distress in the middle of it. Yes, and it uh, it is the stop that is that we expect at a period that just doesn't function that way. Yeah. Um, what I I mostly think of that period in the middle of uh, in the middle of sentences. Basically, I think of it mostly as a rhythmic element. Uh, it it changes the way you read because but at the same time it's it stops you it's an irritant because you think the sentence ends and then as you try to read the next you find no it it actually continues the last sentence and uh, yeah I, I marked I, this is so crucial to me that I marked uh, an example from the new book it's from the sequence um, in pieces and the sentence just goes oh actually it's uh, it's starting with a quote from robert Cree. maybe i need to read the whole little poem the poem is called the problem with pronouns all the bodies one by one the measure says robert creeley composite containing simples as surely as words are pleasure, the door, the white door, all the doors, to the small range of wavelengths called the visible world, we have attached names, so I could speak to you. Now something in the middle has come apart, the word I sits on my shoulders, ready for carnage, but um, what I want is the door, the white door, all the doors to the small range of wavelengths. And that does, you know, you think all the doors, period, you're stopped to the small range of wavelengths called the visible world. But then we have attached names. So again, they are all connected. And at the same time, there are two stops within basically one long sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, it's an irritant. It, uh, it's, and also it slows us down. Mm. And I think that is extremely important um, because we tend to read fast. We tend to read for the underlying meaning and don't pay attention to the words. But, but it all, I mean, one of the main thing of po poetry is I feel to slow us down and to pay attention to the words, to their sound, to their body. And uh, and to their multiple meanings, uh, the the indeterminacy within the words, yeah, which irritates the philosophers, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, which the poets love. Yes. Well, I want to spend more time with speed and time, this this notion of slowing down. But before I do, I wanted to just bring up the other through line through much of your work, which I think you've already touched on a little bit, which is the notion of betweenness and of the gap between things being 
a place of generative possibility. For instance, not only that you live between two languages where Americans notice your German accent when speaking English and Germans say you speak German well for an American, but you also say in the latest collection, quote, I search the cracks between my English and German for more words than either has. So this, this notion of, their, of, of looking for more words that are absent in both languages feels like both a question of betweenness and the gap also. Um, and of course, the prose poem, whose existence seems to include an irresolvable tension or contradiction, is itself a between form. It falls in a gap between genres. But this notion of a generative impulse from, what, from within the nothingness in between and that you're seeking for these more words in the nothingness, you've called this gap gardening, which is the name of your selected poems. And you've also quoted Charles Olson, who said, what is is no longer things, but what happens between things, which seems to suggest that action and motion are usurping matter as substance. And then in in your lament for Barbara Guest in the latest collection, there's the line, it is the connecting between moments, not the moments themselves, that is consciousness. So let's spend a little bit of time with this attraction to, to gaps, silence, emptiness, and betweenness as actually paradoxically the place where creation happens? This is a huge question. <laughs> a lifelong question, even. <laughs> yeah. I, I hardly know where to start. But maybe um, with some background, I mean, this is, um, this is a notion that you find everywhere in the 20th century. Uh, you find it in science. Uh, you know, matter has dissolved into uh, forces, uh, vectors, and what happens between them. Uh, psychology has gone into thinking of uh, the mental states as a balance of vectors and, fo and forces. Um, that's basically the image of the electromagnetic field that has you know, as far as the arts are concerned, has taken over from the dominant image of organic form, you know, the work of art as an organism. But in the 20th century, this, this changes and the field becomes a very dominant form. And, uh, well, you just uh, already quoted sort of words that are very resonant with Whitehead, uh, who is, of course, uh, Olsen's great mentor. Mm. Uh, you know, that... Uh, what happened, there is no longer any substance, there is action and motion. Uh, what, what exists are occurrences, and an event is a nexus of occurrences, and that's what our world is. And this is fascinating, because we still, to a large extent, do think in terms of matter, you know, of stones, of objects. Uh, but then, you know, pound, for instance, uh, and Pound thinking of uh, Fenolosa, 
who wrote this book about the, the Chinese written character in which he says a noun is only the end point of an action and what matters in language is between. And, and this, is, this is great because also uh, the linguists tell us that uh, what is very important is the spaces between words. We don't make, we can't recognize words without the spaces between them, or we can with a great deal of effort. Yeah. You know? There are poets who have used that as to running all the words together, which makes it very hard, you know, makes, it requires a great effort to read. <laughs> but so, you know, you have it in language, you have it, uh, the poets, as you, you quoted Olson, uh, you have it in science, it, it's just everywhere. And uh, so I felt, you know, I was in the, with my own situation between languages, between cultures. Um, I am right in the middle of, of this paradigm shift. You know. Yeah, this is, a, you know, a very strong feeling I have. And of course, this also resonates with translation because, you know, the between languages and, you know, when I, I mean, it's of course slightly bad faith if I say I'm looking for the words that don't exist, <laughs> but there is this feeling, uh, the space between languages is fascinating. Uh, there is no one-to-one -one correspondence. It's all very shifty and, uh, but interesting to explore. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I, I have a feeling that this is going to come up a lot when we're talking later on too, just, just, um, spontaneously because it feels like it's, it, it is a connective tissue. I mean, maybe paradoxically it's the connective to the gap, <laughs> the gaps and the, the absence yeah. is the connective yeah. tissue. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I wanted to bring up, I wanted to return to this question of slowness also, or a question of time. Cause um, Ryan Ruby for the Poetry Foundation, he wrote what I thought was a really incredible piece about your latest book. Yes. And it asks, it asks among other things, what exactly is prose poetry? And by extension, what exactly is poetry? And in, in that investigation, he uncovers something about your work in general, but also something particularly essential to your latest book, I think. So in his piece, which is called Mind the Gaps, um, Mind the Gaps, uh, and which I encourage people to seek out, Ruby says, prose poetry begins life as a paradox and a provocation, and that unlike free verse, which eventually gets assimilated into the wider current of poetry, the prose poem remained marginal until quite recently in history, and that's perhaps because prose poetry calls into question what poetry is, whereas free verse is still lineated, and thus, at least formally, it suggests a continuity with the poetry that came before it. So Ruby asks, if poetry is written in prose, then in what sense is it poetry? And he points out that we've forgotten that at first meter was not a formal feature of poetry at all, but rather a functional aspect of oral literature pre-writing to aid in the memorization of large amounts of information. 
and that the earliest poetic written texts on Greek papyrus had no punctuation and no lineation, and that even as late as Beowulf, which had no line breaks, line breaks often had more to do with the limits or constraints of a particular media technology that one wrote on rather than what was being written itself. So after walking us through this history, which he does much in much more depth than I'm doing now, he, he asks, if the presence of meter, rhyme, and lineation aren't necessary for something to be poetry, what defines something as poetry, or at least defines something as quote-unquote poetic? And then he finally suggests it's poetry's distinct relationship to time. And he quotes Jeff Dalvin, who says, Poetry is the art form that strives toward instantaneity and all-at-onceness, whereas prose unfolds in time. Um, in the intro to Gap Gardening, you say, Gap Gardening, which moved inward from the right margin, suspends time, which makes me think maybe you're, you were pleased by Ruby's analysis Yes, but, indeed. <laughs> but before <laughs> before we talk about the nick of time, um, talk to us more about anything that this sparks in you around poetry's relationship to time. Well, I think this is right spot on that poetry tries to be instantaneous. And it does this by leaps, by condensation, by not putting in all the steps. In, as in an argument, in a continuous argument. There, there are always leaps. Um, actually, Jacques Gobeau puts put that very nicely. He said, you can always go farther, but not always step by step. Mm. So there are the situations, and poetry is the situation where you want to take leaps, you want to condense things. And I think it's this con condensation that's one of the, characteristics of poetry. And of course, this comes out of being German, maybe, because in German, Dichten means, uh, it means to condense, making, making tight, making dense. And it's used, uh, you know, it's used in uh, engineering, you know, <laughs> you say Dichten is making it dense, but it also means writing poems, making language dense, tight, uh, which means you need to cut out a lot of steps. You need to cut out a lot of air. Yeah. You know? that, is, that is, I think, the main sense in which I think of poetry. And that can happen in prose as well as in verse. Yes. And he points out prose that is poet, what would he would point to as poetic, that is also suspending time, that it's working against the unfolding of time. Which I think right. is, I think, then we come to your, your, your prose poetry, which is is doing just that. Trying to, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, I love this idea that by moving the distress of the line break to the middle of the sentence, which you do in a variety of ways, and you mentioned one of them being putting the, a period literally in the middle of a sentence, that that you're disrupting the sentence, and therefore narratives foremost building block and thus because because narrative is an unfolding of time 
you're disrupting the unfolding of time in narrative. Um, but because this is happening within a sentence and not at the end of a line, it also sort of maintains the tension between the two modes. Um, putting something that disrupts the unfolding of time at the center of the tool that unfolds time. So um, I think it, that makes me think of something you say about Edmond Jabez in Lavish Absence, which is one of my favorite books of yours. You say that it is Jabez's insistence on the book on the one hand and on the fragment on the other that has focused your own contradictory impulses toward flow and toward fragment. And this question of flow and fragment flows through your work at large, but so does time as subject. And when you were talking to Michael Palmer maybe five years ago in an interview around the time gap gardening had come out, you said you, you were writing with one eye toward dying, and he added, he added that the other eye was very trained on the details of the world in the now. But leap ahead five years, and the nick of time feels like it has both eyes trained on mortality, where you describe in, in the poem Bits and Pieces the, quote, almost physical wanting of continuity and, and the desire to smooth it over. Um, in this book, one can no longer fool oneself into thinking that this is merely a formal poetics or an aesthetics. Uh, I think we recognize wanting our own stories to continue, the stories of our relationships to continue, the people we love to continue. And it feels like this tension between the sentence and its promise of continuity and its unfolding of time and the void you've smuggled into its heart is also being played out thematically with the mysteries of death and dying. Um and yet at the end of your intro to Jabez's The Book of Margins, you write, P.S., it is not life that creates, but death. Talk to us a little bit about this. Well, you for have formulated all this very, very well. It's almost hard to add to it. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of a of a Borges story, The Immortals, which is a real horror story of a society without death. And there are all these creatures that are totally uh, zombies uh, because there is, with, with no death, there is no urgency to do anything. Mm. And... Uh, and so I think, you know, so this is behind, uh, I think it's a very good example of how death actually creates. And then again, also, you know, language uh, is really in, in some ways based on death because it abstracts from the lovely details of the world around us. Mm. It constantly abstract, I mean, a word is an abstraction. So it kills actually the actual thing <laughs> by uh, by making it a word, and uh, and then creates something with with that death based word. So uh, death is omnipresent uh, 
And of course, it is also because we know we all will die. And as you get older, that sense gets stronger. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and if you have a husband who has a lot of health problems, then it becomes even stronger than normally. Because, uh, you know, I have a... I do think of death a lot, but I also act as if, you know, it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I just act as if this would go on forever. Even so, I know, uh, well, I'm 86, so uh, it's not too far off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but there is this great thing that death also causes us to do things and to make things. And so, you know, our... our Basically, culture is a result of death in the last analysis. <laughs> well, I was hoping maybe here we could hear um, escaping analogy. Escaping analogy. I thought everyone likes a good likeness and cultivated analogies to fill the emptiness within. You cultivated the occipital cortex in the rear of the brain, which guides attention to the visual world. You dislike the net of, this reminds me of that I let spread to the infinite. So my universe has slowed as predicted and lack of cartilage in my joints acts as a restraint on motion. You don't mind that analogies make the air transparent for things not in front of our eyes, but that these manifestations of the incorporeal keep you from seeing what you see, blot out the body. Your mother's, for instance, whose both eyes were fixed on the hidden side of the mirror and whose mind stood apart. You want to be shattered by the cry of the blue jay, the scent of lilac, want to see even if it's Bank of America lettered on a one-story brick building. Because, you say, reality is always in doubt. And so you take abstraction for granted and play among symbols. You keep firm hold of your hand in order to feel it touch the sheet of paper the pen to see that your fingers are long and thin and the nails clean. You would allow all things their own weight and value, but know that they only appear solid, that the elements keep reverting to metaphor. So when you said in a moment of distraction, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, you furtively checked if they were zipped. I admit that analogies may settle into an economy of reflex and moreover contradict one another. Still, I enjoy placing their overlappings next to one another, letting the contradictions phase outward as in a game of dominoes. But now I've seen a pain in your face that isn't like anything else. It has left me shattered because it seems to belong entirely to itself, to have its own dimension. I'm unable to understand, as if trying to hold a mirror to what has no image. When you try to talk about your pain, 
It's as if you had to speak a foreign language and the words are forgotten a moment before they are uttered. In that language, you remember all the bookstores you've been in, all the changes of seasons back to your birth. From that distance, you tell me you once had a German wife. My grammar falls short of these horizons, and I don't know if I should tell you I am that German wife. We've been listening to Rosemary Waldrop read from her latest collection of poetry, The Nick of Time. So I'm very grateful for this poem in particular. I, I was preparing for this conversation while at a month-long residency in Wyoming, and I'd go on these epic runs in the hills among the antelope and the deer and among the skeletons of antelope and deer and the disarticulated wings of birds and birds flying over my head while I'd be thinking about my own writing and about the conversations I was anticipating for the show. But then I'd think about this poem and I'd be undone by it. I'd started I'd start crying and my crying wouldn't just be about your desire to escape analogy with Keith for him to still recognize you as the person you've shaped your life with for 60 65 years but also about death and dying in my own life and my own moving toward it and about death more generally speaking um when Ruby was talking about the, the title of your book, the two meanings of nick of time, one have being having done something just before it's too late, and the other being the way time cuts us, the way it nicks us, and then he suggests a third, less used form of nick, which is to steal, that time steals time from us, and that poetry and his notion is as a way to steal a little bit back by suspending it, by suspending time. But there's a, a contradictory way. I think you're also not only nicking time back from death, but also perhaps creating space for death in your work. And by death, I also mean silence in the not said. Um, Richard Stammelman in his intro to, to Lavish Absence says, quote, Writing replaces life, fossilizes being, arrests time unless it remains focused on and makes a space within itself for death. And that's what it feels like when I hear this and, and much of your poetry. I feel like you're arresting time against death and evoking the end of time, which is death. Um, and another way on the level of the book that you do this is with how periodically as we read, as we move through the nick of time, we come across a lament poem for a writer who you knew who has died. For example, lament for Edmond Jabez, lament for Barbara Guest. And I was, hope I was hoping maybe you could speak about the laments um, and the ways that you honored the people you're lamenting, not only by writing about them, but also sometimes writing under the influence of them. 
when you write your lament? It's not just not only under the influence, but I use their words, uh, not in the their original context, but uh, phrases they used. Um, uh, you know, um, I alternate stances of what I say about them with something you know you say or you wrote, and then quote lines. Uh, so in a way, I'm I'm reading and writing their work mm. as a kind of homage, uh, as a way of holding on to what they what they did in their life that was most important to them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, this is another thing about aging, you know, uh, your world shrinks, your, your friends die, so it, it gets narrower. And uh, and there is this impulse to want to hold on. Yeah. To them. And at the same time, you know, it's the in- inevitability, and it just reminds you that you're on that same road. <laughs> and when you said earlier that the words through representation, in a way, kill the thing that they're representing, in a way, this is the reverse. These laments, it feels like, in a way, these are right vehicles of life about people who have died. Yes, by trying to hold on to their words and incorporating them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could we hear the lament for Robert Creeley? Yes. Okay. Lament. Robert Creeley, 1926 to 2005. Since time withdrew from your body, we can see your mind as sheer expands like a country read about, seen from a distance, visited. It's without borders, nothingness making inroads. It contains the sun and the nothing new under it. There is nothing it is, nothing not. Its way is into form as the bodies was out of the room, the door, the hat, the chair, the fact. It remains, and yet we mourn the end of a world. And listening to Rosemary Waldrop read from the nick of time. So I wanted to bring into our conversation another formal element of of your work. When you read Erasing Analogy, the the first poem you read uh, a couple minutes ago, um, people can't see that the poem is modular with each paragraph surrounded by white space. And, and another way you invite the gap or the silence is through these gaps between paragraphs, not just the, the dis, distress within the sentences, but also the gaps within, um, between the paragraphs. And you said that you're drawn more to juxtaposition and collage and contiguity rather than continuity. And I wonder if there's a con- connection to you, if this is connected to you generally steering clear of metaphor and analogy, um, that the creation of metaphors and analogies is by nature a bridging over of a gap between two different things. So maybe hiding the gap or smoothing the flow, as you say in Erasing Analogy. Um, In Erasing Analogy, you say, analogies keep us from seeing what we see. So another way we could read erasing analogy is perhaps 
that you want to foreground the nothingness between two things that are put next to each other so we can truly see them. Uh, and then it makes me wonder if having the nothingness around them helps us to see them. Um, but talk to us about metaphor and analogy as something you generally, not ex not entirely, but generally avoid and how collage is, is one way to avoid it. Okay, this is another big, big question. And um, it actually, it again goes way back. Um, uh, when uh, in 1970, both Keith and I spent a year in, in Paris. We both had uh, grants and had a year off. And in that year, I was writing a lot and I was writing a lot about walking through the streets. And um, uh, the poems went very well and I was very excited and just, you know, they, they were about language, they were about walk and about walking mainly, uh, but also about the relation between two people. And uh, it, it was only gradually that I realized uh, that uh, what I was do doing was pushing the metaphor out of the literal small metaphor into the structure of the poem. The whole poem was a, was a metaphor between walking, thinking, thinking, writing, and a relation. But but the text was very in a way quite linearly you know, con concerned with walking and such, and uh, and this happened to happen at the same time uh, I met uh, these French poets Claude Royer Journou and Anne Marie Albiac, and uh, in fact on the day we met them uh, Anne Marie's book first book had been published. So it was a very fraught day. But also Claude um, showed us his manuscript, which was not published yet. And right in the middle of that book, on a page by itself, was the sentence, shall we escape analogy? Mm. No question mark, you know, <laughs> but shall we escape analogy? And, and this suddenly uh, made me actually realize what I had been doing, saying, yes, I've been doing something to get away from analogy and uh, toward a more contiguous uh, relational uh, way of writing. And of course, this again relates uh, to the electromagnetic field, um, to, uh, to all the things we've been talking about, how the field, the next the spatial sense of things next to each other um, has become more important than, uh, than the organic form. And well, basically, uh, the, the basic text that made all this very clear to me was one that I had used in my dissertation. Um, it's an article by Jacob, uh, by Roman Jacobson called uh, two kinds of aphasic disorder, if I remember right, uh, in which he establishes that every speech act has two axes, a vertical axis, which he calls the axis of substitution. Like, you know, we can say, we, when we 
start a sentence, we make choices in a vertical axis, like we want to say the man, or do we want to say the guy, the boy, the fellow? We do this for every word, there's an axis of selection, and then we put them together in the axis of combination. And the axis of selection is obviously the axis of metaphor, because you know you put one thing instead of another. And it also has a very strong vertical uh, dimension. And it's, uh, it's really, you know, symbol, metaphor. There's always a kind of connection between the material and the immaterial. So it's also, uh, uh, Olson called it the suck of symbol, the suck of symbol upwards finally to God, you know, so that the world becomes God's book, etc., etc. But what happened uh, with all the field uh, theory and with all the writing, um, say, of Olson, Pound, uh, that the axis of combination has become much more important. Whereas with organic form, the metaphor was the center of the poem. But now, uh, if you look at poems, there's very much a stress on, on the on the horizontal, on the combination of the words, and of course the uh, the arch priestess of this is Gertrude Stein. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, co uh, composition. Uh, everything is the same except composition. You know? Composition is the most important thing. Mm. And um, now the white space is also something uh, I think. Uh, that came to me through the French friends, both uh, both Jabez and uh, Claude, Claude and Anne-Marie, uh, because their poems uh, used an enormous amount of white space between words or sections or stanzas. Um, in fact, uh, when, when Claude's first book book was published, his first review uh, was titled, So Much White, So Much White. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's great. And the, and the other thing, um, but this white, uh, the space between gives an enormous weight to the words, more weight than they would have if they were closer together. Mm -hmm. Because that silence really, again, it slows us down, it makes a pause, and then enfolds the words with more importance than they had would they have otherwise. And you know, in translating Jabez, I always had to fight the publisher to give uh, the book as much white space uh, as the French book has. And I didn't always get as much, but I got some. And at some point. Uh, um, Thomas Allen, I think, of, uh, of Chicago Press, called me up and said, why this white space? It makes no difference to the sense. And I said, well, it makes a difference to the rhythm and thereby does make a difference to the sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he was quite con convinced, but he gave me a little more white <laughs> space than he had planned to. <laughs> So it sounds like white space is much more expensive to get in America than in France. It is. Yeah. It is, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Now that we're talking about collage, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about process with you. Um, in past interviews, you've talked about how sometimes 
when you were stuck, you'd use techniques from the Dadaists to break loose again. Sometimes you'd also use grammatic structures of another text as a constraint. And you've also used Ulipian constraints like N plus seven when writing the book Shorter American Memory. And you've, you've taught procedural methods like these in classes. But you've also said something really interesting that I'd love to explore further, and that's your use of source texts as a constraint. So that you, you're using source material, not just um, for content, but it's itself as a constraint the way most poets might use metrical schemes is one way you've put it before. And you have quite a few books where somebody else's book is a generative source and a constraint. So we have Shorter American Memory, which uh, collages documents from Henry Beston's American Memory. We have A Key into the Language of America, engaging with a 16th century preacher's book on Native American languages in what is now Rhode Island. You have a book that uses work by Wittgenstein. And here in the nick of time, not only did you read a lot about time and use the vocabulary of physics and, and the philosophy of language in the book from a variety of books that you read about time, and not only do you use ideas or styles or quotes from the people whose passing you are lamenting in the Lent po in the lament poems, and not only do you lift phrases in the rehearsing the symptom sequence and use them without attribution from everyone, from Kafka to Blanchot to Liz Spector to Rebecca Solnit. But you also, again, engage with source text, and not just for research, but where the language of the source text is part of your text. And, and, and one of the places I'm thinking of in your new book is, is the case of the Mandarin language primer. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about this interest in source texts as a way to create your own text through theirs in a general sense. And then maybe you could, you could dial it in and talk to us about um, the source text uh, that you used in the nick of time. Let me go back a lot again. Um, the way I came to collage first was, uh, was very early in, in my trying to write. All my very early poems were about my mother and my difficult relationship with her. And at a certain point, I decided this was a dead end and I needed to get out of myself and my obsessions. And I decided to make objective poems. <laughs> and I would make them by, say, taking a book and taking three words on ev from every page and try to make a structure. And uh, this actually got very interesting to, for me, and I liked it, and I wrote a number of them, and they, you know, they were not, I liked them well enough, but I put them away. And a, a while later, I looked at them and found they were still about my mother. Mm. But, <laughs> but there was also something else going on. And, uh, and they were getting more interesting than they had been when I was only pouring out my obsessions. <laughs> and uh, so that was an important moment for me. I, know, I realized two things. One is 
that your obsessions get into your work no matter what you do. And the other was, so you don't have to worry about content uh, and can concentrate on form. The other was that uh, that form is totally generative. And, uh, and I think this is actually, you know, why Rhyme and Mida have lasted that long because the form generates uh, the content. And it really made me stick with collar because it was uh, so an obvious thing that these words that I hadn't put together, but somebody else had, uh, if I put them you know, together with something I was thinking, uh, something was happening uh, there were there was uh, you know there were sparks flying suddenly over the gap between the other words and my words so this became important very important to me and the other thing that was uh, that became important is let other voices come into my text open it up and in some uh, some of it, I make obvious by you know using the language of physics. It's obvious that you know I'm not a physicist. I don't even understand a lot of what I try to read about it. Um, but uh, so, just another dimension comes in through the collage. Yeah. Um, it it could also come through uh, you know acknowledged quotation. But uh, but somehow that doesn't quite work for me. That makes it too direct. Uh, so I prefer to just work them. In. Also, I use so often use very small segments uh, and put them into a sentence of my own. There's really a, a kind of merging that doesn't lend itself to quotation marks all the time. Yeah. But uh, there is always a built-in gap. Even so, I try to say put somebody else's word into a sentence that the rest of it is made up by me. Um, there is a, an in, uh, a gap involved, and the gap causes causes uh, you know sparks to fly, uh, connection, relation uh, makes for things happening. Um, yeah, the, the edges give off sparks for me. Well, let me ask you a question about the Mandarin, the choice of the Mandarin primer in the nick of time. Because when I when I think of your choice of um, transforming and engaging with shorter um, the source texts in shorter American memory and a key into the language of America, it feels like you're in engaging with those texts. It feels like you're commenting on and critiquing or exploring power in relation to language and are in some ways disrupting the stories that America is telling itself. And I also feel like the way you're disrupting just more generally the tools of narrative, it feels like you're, you're disrupting certain power structures in disrupting the sentence. Um, were there what are the reasons behind choosing the Mandarin primer, and did they also include, or perhaps not include, um, questions of power with relation to language? Um, actually, the the Mandarin that was totally accidental. I came across this primer, 
And uh, just looking at some of the examples and how strange the phrasing was, uh, I was just sort of delighted to read it and then thought I would play with it. And it was mostly playful, but uh, well, the other thing uh, that I you know, that I strongly connect with China is tea. I'm a great tea drinker, so that subject matter got in, and and then just you know, in playing with it, began to think a little bit of the tensions between East and West, the history of China, uh, how the West, uh, you know, basically introduced, tried to drug all of China with the opium trade. Um, and uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, then also how women were treated, you know, getting their feet bound uh, yeah. so that they couldn't really move. And and all this, yes, uh, I mean that it always boils down to power structures and how they work out, uh, both in language and in real life. Could, could we hear a couple of the short pieces from the primer? Okay. Tones. A rhythmical chime, a musical imperative not unpleasant to the ear. Unlike the West's belief that it is superior and naturally meant for global leadership, no sentence should be committed to memory without letting the upper even tone run in the track of shared perception rather than carefully guarded nautical secrets. Even if you reject the all-embracing determinism of magic, you must address every object because there is truth in all things. Nevertheless, you should not hold out one hand without keeping the other in reserve. The refinement of the rising and falling tones can change a love whisper into statistics and explains our concern for microadjustment. There was no technology known to Renaissance Italy, which the Chinese had not developed earlier. See table on page 99. Pronunciation. P as in park, not bark. CH as in church, not jerk. G as in gunpowder, invented for use in fireworks, not cunning. H has two sounds, one as in English, how come the Chinese rejected the use of their invention for violent purposes, the other to be assembled from memory. SH is pronounced with the teeth closed and a damp cloth. HS, on the contrary, with the whole face. Whatever the reason, because the Orient denied itself the use of gunpowder for violence, it laid itself open to defeat by the Western barbarians. I've been listening to Rosemary Waldrop read from The Nick of Time. So I want to ask you about identity, voice, autobiography, and the pronoun I with regards to your work. Another big question. So um, Edmond Jabez said, Otherness is the condition of individuation. If we say I, we already say difference. And you say in this collection in a poem called Loving Words, I 
is not my name is anybody's promiscuously language which is all difference proves that you and i are not one are though every sentence hopes for love each wrapped in our own quilt and alone so keeping both your and jabez's mirroring words in mind i I wonder if you're bringing the distress into the middle of the sentence a trojan horse of destruction inside the engine of narrative is also a possibly a way to bring distress into a cohesive delimited notion of self when um when talking about your novel the hanky of pippin's daughter which is a fictionalized version of your childhood in Nazi Germany, you say, the drive to know our own story moves us to see through it and touch the violence inherent in the mechanism itself. And and Marjorie Pertloff, in, in looking at the two places where you most actively engage with that era of your life, the novel and then also the collection Split Infinities. She says, if the many allusions in Waldrop's writings are to be believed, her parents and their friends were active Nazis, and thus what the poet perceived to be her dark past made it imperative for her to find a poetic form that would be, quote, a way of getting out of myself. And and you've talked about how if the war had gone on another four months, you would have been the age of conscription into the female version of Hitler's youth, that you learned the Nazi salute with the alphabet. And in your poem memory tree, the lines, my first school day, September 1941, a cool day, time did not pass, but was conducted to the brain. I was taught the Nazi salute, the flute, so I, I'm, I'm curious to hear about this notion that the drive to know our own story moves us to see through it and touch the violence inherent, inherent to the mechanism itself. If perhaps you see the story of self as something like Pertloff suggests, as something to escape, or perhaps distress, um, or as Roland Barthes said in, in one citation that you you, you gave of him. Writing is the destruction of every voice, of every point of origin. The negative where all identity is lost. Uh, talk, talk to us about I and identity in this, in this realm. I first want to just pick up on uh, the, the violence of uh, inherent in the mechanism of telling, of story, of writing. Um, I'm really think, thinking of that as the incredible abstraction and condensation that that process involves. It's again uh, killing the life, really, um, because it, uh, and in the hanky of Pippin Sada, the, the title comes from a local legend which was that uh, Pippin's daughter dropped a handkerchief from the mountain, from the castle on the mountain, and a shepherd found it. The shepherd's name was Kitz, and so my hometown was named Kitzingen. Um, this was interesting to me because uh, 
the legend says nothing else about the daughter, a whole life reduced to one gesture of dropping a handkerchief. And then she doesn't even get her name on the town, <laughs> but the man who finds it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so there is, an, uh, there is again this death basis of writing, of narration, uh, uh, of abstraction that we constantly are engaged in. Yeah. Um, but uh, the self is uh, a complicated matter. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, I have many poems that sort of uh, play with alternative lives, alternative selves. Um, um, and I think, I think we all have that to some extent. Of course, it has been studied in its extreme in schizophrenics. But um, it's, it's interesting that uh, I did want to get out of myself uh, and on the surface, you know, I, it was really getting away from my mother. Um, but uh, there is probably something to what Marjorie says that I felt a need to get away from this Nazi past that I was part of without knowing it. And in fact, this is something that has obsessed me and I've been trying to write something about it. There are some phrases I remember from early childhood, which surprises me that I remember them. And, uh, but even so at the time, I did not understand them. For instance, we, uh, when I was about three or four, we moved certainly not older than four, probably three, we moved into a new apartment. And uh, when we were looking at it with the, uh, with the proprietor, um, there was one room that was very dark. It had a wine red waste paper, uh, wine red wallpaper. And, uh, and I was hesitant to go into that room. And, I remember a male voice saying, the kid's got instinct, doesn't want to go into the Jew place. Oh, wow. And this phrase has stuck in my head, <laughs> I mean, over 50 years. And uh, I don't remember who said it. It could have been my father. It could have been the proprietor. Mm. But I have that, I had that phrase. And so that I was part of, uh, you know, obviously Jews had been, had been expelled and, and this, um, and their property was up for, for sale very cheaply. And so we were moving into a house that had been the property of Jews. Um, and I mean, this, this became a big problem when I was a teenager and began to realize what had happened. And uh, and obviously I'm still not quite done with it yeah. because I'm trying to write about it, but I haven't been able to, it's, uh, it's not been working. Um, but so this, this being a witness, to, a witness without being a witness, being present without being a witness. I, and I think Marjorie put her finger on something mm. that I really, that that was a necessity for me. But um, but yes, uh, but then there's also the the positive side of getting out of yourself, and that is, you know, we tend to get stuck 
in if we get in our very narrow selves and trying to open out to other voices uh, is very important. I mean, the whole the whole racism bit is uh, you know uh, uh, being stuck in one ideology and not seeing other ways of looking at things. So I th think this was underlying my cultivation of collage and bringing other voices into the thing, into my writing. But uh, but it also at the, uh, in the early stages actually worried me. I was sort of wondering if my if my writing was really had anything to do with me. And it also seemed that every text seemed so different from the next one that I had no self, that there was nothing in the center. <laughs> and um, which is probably true. It's, you know, like the atom <laughs> moment, we are mostly empty space yeah. with things relation, <laughs> relating and, circu and um, circulating it. Um, I was I was worried that there was no center to my writing, that it was just not that it was all just uh, that that the collage was total. But I but when I was asked to put together a short um, selected poems, one of the great things that I realized was, in spite of all these differences and all seemed so separate to me, there was a distinct voice. Mm -hmm. With, with all the poems, no matter where the sources were and where they came from. And that was a great relief, you know, that there was something that was me writing, even with the other voices. Yeah, I mean, there is, as a reader, it seems kind of magical with, with all the emphasis on gaps and discontinuity and engaging with the words of others, that there is this great, I think there is this great continuity. Yeah, I think across your work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it was that putting together a selected that made me aware of that, yeah. and I was very grateful. <laughs> yeah, well, your your life story beyond the the remarkable sweep of history it now contains from protesting a lecture by Heidegger in Germany in the nineteen fifties before you left to meeting George Oppen late in his life. Your life is also tempting to create analogies and the narrative connections between it and your poetry. Like I'm tempted to want to create analogies and narrative connections, perhaps in the spirit of Marjorie Pertloff, um, the discontinuities in your childhood that your town was bombed in 1943 and you were shifted from village to village for two years living with family members or acquaintances. Um, I mean, it's easy to try to connect this to your affinity to the word between and your attraction to disjunction. Or that when the war was over, your parents are biking from town to town, bartering items for food. And I'm guessing you're maybe 10 or 11, the year that school is suspended for an entire year and you join a traveling theater group. Um and in the afternoons you're playing a dwarf in Snow White, and in the evenings you're playing the son of a Russian nobleman, uh, and how this might connect you to a, a different sense of selfhood and identity. But instead of doing this, 
making these connections or perhaps forcing these connections. I don't know. I, I, I want to talk about another link between your life and your work that people can't seem to help themselves from drawing a connection um, and which you push back against. And that is your connection with the e Egyptian Jewish writer Edmond Jabez. And many have wanted to make a connection between you as a German non-Jew translating the Jewish Jabez as the main reason you were translating him was because he was Jewish. And you've pushed back in print that no, there, there's a, there are a lot of reasons why you're translating Jabez and not Elie Wiesel, for instance, or any number of other writers whose, whose sensibilities animating questions or poetics are not ones you're interested in. Um, so I was hoping maybe we could, we could talk about your enduring attraction to Jabez's work to the point where you're both um, writing about each other. So, I, I mean, I love the moment that he's writing about you in one of the 14 books you've translated of his. He's writing about you in the Book of Margins, which, of course, I'm reading in your your translation. So it's a it's a whole nother <laughs> level of of <laughs> of questions of self and identity and language. And again, bringing in the words of others, but also carrying the words of others across for us into English. Could, could you speak to uh, another impossible question for you to speak to um, some of the attraction of Jabez for you? Well, there, there may well have been a subliminal uh, sense of connecting with Jewishness because, you know, it was this big uh, horror in my life. Um, um, but, um, but as I said, there were many other writers that I did not feel at all moved to translate. It, it was definitely the form of the book. Um, and actually, um, he, he first wrote little poems uh, sort of in the partly in the wake of surrealism. And uh, and Keith, my husband, translated a number of them. Uh, and I liked them, but I felt no urge to go into that. And it was the book of questions, which which of course uh, engages with the Holocaust, yeah. you know. So it did tap into this, but it was also its form. Um, which is that the story is never told. It is just a subtext, a pretext, as he says. And you get you get little 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 fragments of a narration, but you get mostly commentary on these fragments. You get rabbis comment, commenting, you get little images and then and then layer and layer of interpretation. And this, this was so fascinating that I, I was overwhelmed by the book. And so it was, you know, obviously one cannot separate out the strands. So there was both the subject matter of the Holocaust and this incredibly inventive form, which, uh, which seemed uh, probably stranger to a Westerner than to uh, um, say the Egyptians or, or it, there's the Arabic uh, uh, tradition of the Divan, which is very much behind Jabez's form, which is also in Europe. People, usually rabbis or, or men 
meeting around a lamp or around tea and talking. And that, of course, is what Chavez's book do, except that they can also get a little more and more abstract. And in the end, he dispenses with a story underlying and only has the aphorisms separated by quite a bit of white space. It was interesting when you were describing that memory, that partial memory you have about the Red Room, and you said how the Holocaust wasn't something that you directly experienced, but it seems like such a defining um, aspect of of the formation of, of your poetics and yourself in some regards. And it feels like that's true for Jabez, too, in the sense he didn't, he was not a European Jew, and he was affected by the Holocaust, obviously, as a Jew, but also because he was expelled from Egypt right. in the 50s, and so was living in exile in France. So in a way, it's if, again, instead of escaping analogy, I want to make this analogy between <laughs> your work, the great formative thing in both of your lives is also something that is um, not something that either of you experienced directly. Um, but, I, but I love the way in, in, in Lavish Absence and other places, writing about Jabez becomes an act of writing about yourself. Um, and you, you quote um, Dominique Grammont, who said, we always search for the meaning of our own life in the text we translate, and sometimes we find the other inside ourselves. But I, but I, I think we see this mirroring throughout. Um, when you say about yourself, my mother tongue is a foreign language, and about Jabez, um, Jabez is the poet of the non-place. I feel something vibrating between the two of you when I read those things together. Yeah. Or in, in response to Adorno, who said to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, and Jabez said, after Auschwitz, we must write poetry, but with wounded words. I think of all the ways we've discussed your attempts to distress the sentence, um, which does feel like a way to wound the sentence, um, which loops me back to Jabez again with quotes like, subversion is the very movement of writing, the very movement of death, and the written page is no mirror. To write means to confront the unknown face. And also the uncanniness that I'm really reading your words right now. I'm not reading his words. Um, um, I also love the way you describe your relationship over time, how there was a period you felt like you had to defend your own writing against his ideas before you ultimately let them in, and how he writes about you in the Book of Margins as you write about him in Lavish Absence. Um, and then even the really, I think, funny essay, delightfully transgressive essay you write about him and the devil and about how <laughs> translation is um, also an act of destruction motivated by envy, um, which I thought was really great. Um, but there's one way that at least on the surface, your approaches seem like polar opposites, and that is around metaphor. And you've also written about this 
because metaphor is his primary tool. He sees both the Jew and God as metaphors. He sees Judaism as a collective experience of individuation and thus a metaphor for the human condition. And much of his writing is this really strange accretion of metaphor on top of metaphor. But you've argued that even here where the tools are opposite, your tools and his tools are opposite, that perhaps you and Jabez are reaching toward the same subversion with opposite methods. And I was wondering if you could maybe just speak to, because it is like if we think about your moving away from metaphor and towards collage and then looking at his um, immersion in metaphor, you could say at least on the surface that it was a strange pairing. True. But uh, but actually, he is uh, overusing metaphor to the point where he empties it out. And, uh, and so there is actually, you know, there are different ways to get away from metaphor. Like he just exhausts it. He heaps one on the other and, and, and until finally everything is like everything else. And then, you know, when everything is like everything else, nothing is like nothing. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, and uh, actually, he, I don't think he really was aware of that. Uh, that that uh, he was aware of the metaphor and he wanted the metaphor, but uh, but really, uh, if you look at it from the outside, I think uh, he's also subverting it. Well, when you were talking earlier about the verticality of metaphor, uh, you said something like the sucking motion of oh, that's meta- phrase, yeah, the suck of symbol up <laughs> the suck of symbol up to God, right? To a yeah, God for right, who for him right. is a metaphor and not something he actually believed in. Right. No, I asked him about that, uh, and and that's what he said. You know, verbatim, he said, said uh, it's a metaphor every for everything that calls us into question: death, silence, yeah. nothingness, the void. Just very briefly before we return to the nick of time, um, in the nick of time, uh, we'll return to the nick <laughs> of time. I just wanted to read a, a couple lines from him that you pointed out in your essay collection, Dissonance, um, as an example of him eroding the linking function of metaphor. And you, you preface it by saying, if you're not paying attention, it may seem like he, it's an inept use of metaphor, but rather it's this technique to erode metaphor through metaphor. Um, Childhood is a piece of ground bathed in water with little paper boats floating on it. Sometimes the boats turn into scorpions. Then life dies, poisoned, from one moment to the next. The poison is in each corolla as the earth is in the sun. At night, the earth is left to itself but happily, people are asleep. In their sleep, they are invulnerable. The poison is the dream. I just love that. Um, could could we hear the, um, to return to your book, um, even though we just again just heard your words, um, could we hear the poem Coupling? Yes, that gets at the identity problem. <laughs> Yes. 
<laughs> okay, coupling. I often feel I'm a different person depending on whom I am with. As a word in a sentence may be felt to belong first with one word and then with another and will be different. At a party, I get scattered into so many selves, I can't invent enough pseudonyms. I liked the rosemary I was with Keith Waldrop. Therefore, I became Rosemary Waldrop and now stick to one name. This, I hoped, would help me get hold of myself, hands, feet, hair and all so I could close my eyes in pleasure at having an identity. But to be contracted into a single being by another person, how strange. Sure enough, the other selves still hover behind my eyes and mock the flimsy construction. They abuse their resemblance to words as a lure for your feelings. When I try to dive deep into our moments and forage for love, I get caught in a puzzle of which me is speaking and to which you. Then I gasp for air, shadowy, a mere residue of echoes, the way words grow dim when there is no meaning coupled to the vocal cords. Instead of the encounter of two persons along one shared edge or a play of reflection and opposition of two not quite mirroring halves, we are dealing in multitudes. Should we not enable them? Every tulip wants an open field, the hills all different shapes, the sky so up and out. Why should all ourselves be cramped into one single nakedness? as if undressed down to our contradictions, we need to scatter them into orbit to go on, to curve outward toward distant stars and other pens. But so the play of many perspectives in, is enlarging the boundaries, so all the bodies, one by one, may be the measure. It is hard to breathe among many smelly armpits. It seems that two selves can't be put snugly next to one another, as in a drawing of an arrow through two hearts. Neither, it seems, can more than two. A gap remains and is its own emotion and a little sweaty. And listening to Rosemary Waldrop read from the nick of time. When we think of this meditation on coupling and the many selves of the so-called individual and the ways you use source texts of another to generate your own texts and the way you told Michael Palmer that reading and writing have become part of a single process for you, that you need to be reading or listening to the other in order to find the words to begin something. And then the ways your decades-long collaboration with Chavez is one of both self-discovery 
and one of inviting the other into the self, I wanted to spend a moment with the notion of circularity and whether circularity is something that compels you. Because even the notion that creativity is generated by death or comes from death, not from life, it feels cyclical to me. And in your collection, Blindsight, you have the lines. What is memory? A palace? The belly of the mind? Of absence, a dream? The baby in the picture, I don't remember, but I remember my doll. That, that circling back to yourself as a baby that you don't recognize, but you do recognize the doll, um, makes me think of the ways you engage with Keith's deteriorating memory in the latest book, too. The way the book looks at the deterioration of both time and self in old age, but also looks at the, at the same time at language acquisition in early childhood it's it's true that uh, a review of a book on the child's language uh, acquisition got into the book, and it it is at the time when I watched the language disappearing from my husband's use of it. Uh, so it's obvious, you know, that must have. I mean, it's an interesting subject in itself, the acquisition of language, but it must have made it so relevant to me because I was watching the opposite uh, and so yeah so the, the way the baby uh, really is a kind of uh, probability calculus you know and uh, and then how the, the words go away and uh, I'm not sure I, I can really say anything about it it it's there, but I can't articulate. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about a different notion of I in relation to your work, and that is the organ of perception that is the I. Because I, I've i noticed that the I seems to occur more than almost anything else, the, the, I, the organ of perception. And I feel like I could spend an hour reciting the I references in your work, but I'm going to just recite a brief sampling, but literally like I was noting how often the I appears. The first line in, in Gap Gardening, to see darkness, the I withdraws from light in light. In your book, Blindsight, the I most dangerous of lenses. Some others include to explore the nature of rain I open the door because inside the workings of language, clear vision is impossible. And was I frightened by what I saw or by my own eyes? And with the mind's eye, we see against the light the way we see the dead. And one of my favorites, we must close our eyes to conceive of heaven the inside of the lid is fertile in images unprovoked by experience, or perhaps it's pressure on the eyeball equals prayer. So these are all quotes from before your latest book, but the nick of time continues this, this eye tradition and fascination. 
Here are a couple examples. How can we see time as it is when we treat it like a thing? And here's one that I might put forth as a Rosemary Waldropian poetics. If I let the night invade my eyes all the way to the horizon as if it had a body, might I then see the cause of my not seeing? And finally, uh, one that unites the eye of identity and the eye of perception. Children born blind say I only after they've learned to play with a doll. So, Rosemary, why why the eye? Well, <laughs> uh, you have very big questions, all right. <laughs> um, well, the vision is our most important sense. And it's the one I'm most comfortable with, you know, like much more comfortable than with hearing, even so I love music. For instance, I think, I really am convinced I think on paper. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, I read about Rimbaud going for a walk and coming back home and having finished the poem in his head and writing it down. I could never do that. Uh, nothing happens until I put it on paper and, uh, and start seeing the words. Uh, and uh, so for me, uh, I'm also much more comfortable with email interviews than I am with one you know, that goes by the ear. Mm -hmm. So the, the eye is just the most important sense. But I also, uh, there is a little... Um, I can't quote it by, by memory, but Louis Zukowski um, plays on the, the sound equivalence between the eye as the person and the eyes, you know, uh, and that, that struck me as enormously true, mm. that, that the eye really sits in the eyes. <laughs> So uh, I was very excited when I came across that in Zukowski said, yes, you know, this is right. But, uh, but that also, uh, you know, that I take it uh, to the writing, that the writing becomes almost like seeing for me, that uh, I see with words. Mm -hmm. uh, it's... Uh, well, it's an exaggeration, but it gets at at what goes on in my process. You know? I, the words need to be outside myself, visible on paper you know, before I do anything. The the quote of allowing the night to invade your eyes as if it had a body made me wonder about um about the body in your work. It, it, it's a it is subject in this book for sure, but you, all, you also have said things like poetry where sound and meaning are equally important reminds us that words have bodies, that image is in part part of the physical world. And you've talked about how breath stands for the process of the poem coming into being. Um, and when you were talking to Michael Palmer, you mentioned how Goethe claims that 
style tends to become more abstract with age. That the old Titian no longer painted velvet, but the idea of velvet. And, and Palmer brought this very much back to the body. He said, we are also witnessing the aging of both the hand and the eyesight and the revised economy, if that is the word, mandated by such changes and the acknowledgement of the unrepresentable and the gradual metamorphosis of memory. And I guess it made me wonder about the body in general, but also its revised economy. Um, and if its revised economy, as Palmer puts it, has changed your relationship to, to either language or process. It has changed the process to becoming even more fragmented than before, <laughs> yeah. partly because there seems to be so much less time, which is simply because everything takes longer to do. And so there's less time. And so it's even more fragmented and it's even harder to get things to gel, to, you know, to have a coherence, uh, which they do need, <laughs> you know, much as I love fragments. <laughs> Um, but uh, to language itself, I'm not sure, because uh, language is such, I mean, there is this constant inner uh, flow of words that goes through our heads, uh, and that hasn't really changed, I think, uh, uh, except that the physical body sort of intrudes more on it. <laughs> You know, yes. uh, one, one has to think more about the body than, than one does when one is young, you know, then the body is taken for granted and you don't have to worry about it. But as it breaks down, it, it obtrudes. You know. Well, let's, let's finish with a, a final poem. Um, I was thinking maybe we could end with loving words. Okay, loving words. I have never felt one with leaves, wind, rain, and able to cry. Not one with my surroundings, like the California winter walking upriver, hills to the west, whom a mosquito bites on his west arm, and who on the way back, hills still to the west, scratches the bite on his east arm. I filled my house with many different things, as if to create an, an ecology to encourage diversity of experience. The way areas with greater numbers of animals and plant species are said also to have a greater number of languages. Yet I've retreated into the two dimensions of page and perspective cavalière turned my back on the window in favor of definite articles on perception of introversion and subcutaneous shivers. As if there, within my mind, I could conjugate myself and my desires, when it's clear we need the world and its obstacles in order not to destroy ourselves. And even thinking is the inrush of other voices like Mary's conceiving through the year. I 
is not my name, is anybody's, promiscuously. Language, which is all difference, proves that you and I are not one. Or so every sentence hopes for love, each wrapped in our own quilt and alone. When I clear my throat of words and just watch a blade of grass, the green is too strong to be seen. Open myself to wind dripping the air, cars honking and squealing, the sounds are noise and stop at the left ear. My mind dissipates into dismal mush until I return to the refreshment of verbs, pronouns, conjunctions, and the world returns with a dependence of clauses. My senses are inept without auxiliary words. It is words let me see what I see, feel what I feel, even what isn't quite feeling yet, but weeds combed by a stream, only the tip rising here or there, a reflection. A ripple. Even if ink is the color of where you are not, if putting one word next to another cannot close the distance, doesn't even a syllable on the tip of my tongue call you across oil spills and gusting winds? How could words be mere echo or mirror when they give shape to the air? How could I be deceived in thinking that it is words bring me to myself and reach out and reach, albeit sideways, through twists of syntax, the strangeness between us? Thank you so much, Rosemary, for spending these two hours with me today. Well, thank you for bringing, having made this possible and, and having formulated so well so many complicated <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure really i love this probably i love this interview i mean you you raised so many questions uh and uh i'm really thankful for what you did <laughs> yeah well i'm very thankful for your work too i've it was i, I can't tell you how much pleasure it's been immersing myself in it. We've been talking today to Rosemary Waldrop about her latest book from New Directions, The Nick of Time. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio, Rosemary reads Adam or the Birth of Anxiety from Edmund Jabez's The Book of Shares. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, Arthur Z, Diren Negrifa, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Natalie Diaz, Richard Powers, N.K. Jemison, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other many potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com/slash between the covers. 
or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division. Jacob Bala in the art department. Becky Kramer in publicity. And Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>